Knowing what body this character has really drops me. Actions, the thesaurus, that has become like a Bible. It's creative visualization that really set me free. I love actioning, very specific action verb. This is season three, season three of The Actor's Mind, a podcast. You got it, you got it. <laughs> By Kateri McCrae and Adam Penna. <laughs> Welcome to a very special start to season three of The Actor's Mind. This is the first time that we are recording remotely from one another. Uh, so we have very beautiful two-dimensional <laughs> views of each other's <laughs> now over Zoom. Um, but, you know, luckily podcasts are something that is not all that hard to do remotely from home. So we feel really fortunate that we're able to continue. I'm Kateri McCrae. And I'm Ann Penner. And uh, we are both professors at the University of Denver. I'm in the Department of Psychology. And I'm in theater. And today, although we have uh, several other episodes in the works for you for uh, the launch of our third season of The Actor's Mind, we actually wanted to start by being a little bit more current than we're able to be. Usually our episodes are sort of a long endeavor um, to plan and record and edit and then produce and get out to you. Uh, but we wanted to sort of shorten the timeline a little bit so that we could get a relatively current topic out, which is how theater and psychology are responding to the really rapid changes in how we're living and how we're teaching uh, in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah. So we're going to start with talking about uh, how it's affected theater teaching <laughs> and teaching things like acting and directing and movement and voice and design uh, online. So uh, I'm going to just start talking because I've had this experience. We're in now the fourth week of uh, the DU quarter. And I am teaching two classes. Neither is officially just an acting class. I do have two colleagues doing that. But one class I'm teaching is called Theater Imagination. Uh, our department has taught it uh, at least since the 80s. And it's a creativity class. So the students are creating um, small projects every Monday. So create and present a story told only through movement or create and present a story told only through sound or using this text or using these objects, uh, etc. And then my other class is a new one for me, uh, which is movement and voice training for actors. Um, <laughs> so I'm, of course, bumping up uh, to challenges online. As I'm sure is true of so many of us, you know, I'm three weeks in, I'm still figuring out what changes I have to make. Um, I'm realizing it along the way, uh, which to me drives home this idea that when any of us is innovating or creating something, um, in this case, how to teach training, actor training online, that it requires more than one iteration to get it right. So I think each week I'm getting sure. better and that by the end of the quarter, I of course will know even more. I wanted to start with the losses. There is a, a great big loss in terms of not being able to teach performance in person. And I actually want to quote very briefly my colleague, Rick Barber, uh, who's a friend of mine, colleague, and he's teaching acting one right now, which I, I teach a lot. And he says, I'm doing what I can to offer the tools for a fundamental understanding of the actor's process and applying those tools to monologues, um, which is at best a fraction of what a student needs to do to actually learn to act at a basic level. The things they really need to do to learn to truthfully play off another actor and or audience are not possible to provide at a distance. Or he calls it through the veil of the screen, right? That there's mm -hmm. always this kind of veil. 
he says, actual eye contact is not possible. But he says, legit spontaneous reception of energy from another person is not possible. Authentic physical language movement is seriously compromised. Uh, the single fundamental non-negotiable requirement of our craft is the real-time physical presence of people together in the same physical space, negotiating the moment, which is in quotes, meaning like what is actually happening in this moment with all our physical senses engaged. That's it, period, full stop. That said, there are, I think, some gifts in this uh, teaching, which I will get to. Some other lesser losses is theater is all about collaboration. Theater is all about working with other people. And so my students are not able to do that so much. I think they still will be able to do it. Um, they obviously can can work with each other, uh, both in class and out of class, but they cannot physically be close to each other. Um, viewpoints after movement training is so much about building ensemble. Um, but that said, uh, I'm teaching viewpoints, I'm teaching Kristen Linklater voice technique, I'm teaching a little Suzuki actor training, all of these still allow for really strong, rigorous, disciplined individual training, which is what I'm really driving home this quarter. Yeah. Um, in, in my class, that's both movement and voice training. I'm actually more saddened by the vocal training because movement, you can do a lot with Zoom and there's, sure. I, I can, it's more macro, it's bigger. So I can watch, I can pin someone and make them big and I can see them move and I can comment on it. Uh, voice I can to some extent, but I think I need to do some more small group and one-on-one -on -one work with the voice because the voice is so physical and it is, it's about breath and vibrations in three dimensions, both the three dimensions of your body, like uh -huh. where, where breath is happening in your body. Is it in your belly? Is it in your lower back? Is it getting stuck here in your throat or in your yeah. neck? And then of course, how it fills the space. And I can, I can respond to that in a real space. Um, I think I can, I will to some extent be able to respond to it in smaller groups. Uh, and, and I'm hoping to do some one-on-one -on -one work, but that's, that's a loss. That's harder. Um, yeah. And it's, huh. it's funny, as you were describing to me right now, I started to pay more attention to the physical cues you were giving me. And I was like forcing my brain to connect them to the sounds you were producing. Yeah. And that was actually, and this is not my area of expertise. So I, I'm not used to like looking at the tension in someone's neck and being able to say like, oh, that's too much or too little or misplaced. But like, as you were taking off, like all of the things that you were saying you were missing, I was like, well, I'm getting a little bit of that channel right now. Like I'm getting a little bit of that channel. And then you said something about the way that the sound fills the space. And I'm like, yeah. oh, I'm getting very little of that. Yeah. Like a tiny bit. Like when you really resonate, I can I can hear a little bit of reverber reverberation mm -hmm. off your walls at home. But that to me is like the big, because it's the other thing about that is that it also puts your students on different playing fields, right? Like I'm currently in an open loft in right. my house, which is really different than being in one of our closed offices where we're right. usually recording the podcast or, uh, I mean, on a stage, right? Like, which are often not always not, and not usually studios where you're doing classes, but stages are often optimized for a good acoustic. Right. Something like that. So, but that's so, that's interesting. And a little counterintuitive, like once you explain it, I totally understand, but a tiny bit counterintuitive that the physical training is actually easier to do from a distance than the vocal yeah. training only because we've had voice transmission technology for so long. Right. 
and the video transmission technology is relatively new, right? right like when I, right. when I was a kid, that was still fictional. Like the Jetsons, right. like video phone. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. And now, now we're all teaching by Jetson video phone all the time. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's okay because this is just the way it is. It's not my, the teacher's fault or my, the student, you know, the student's fault. Yeah. And so you do what you can. And I just find myself coexisting with like, oh, this sucks. This is crappy. And then also what I will get to, and we will get to is like, there are things that are fine, like teaching and learning is still happening. And there are even a few silver linings. Um, The one thing with voice that is maybe uh, the silver lining is I, I translate for them what I might be doing. So if I might with permission be like laying hands on the lower back or the belly or the shoulders, I translate that into, um, well, images, which you use a lot in voice, but to get them to feel it physically. So if, if the point of teaching is actually to get the student to learn something and not, and not to have you teach well, if I can get my students physically dropped into the sensation mm. of breathing deeply and keeping your neck relaxed, uh, and one would argue, I want to get into this idea of distractions, whether there's more or fewer distractions online. If there are fewer distractions because everyone's just less busy, then there actually is an opportunity to really strengthen your practice as an actor. Sure. Um, yeah, because because uh, you are now tasked with solving these things that a teacher might kind of show you more quickly. Mm. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. So the, those are the big losses. I have some pros too. Some, some <laughs> yeah. So there's, there's a term, um, that my sister Taller uses a lot, especially when she's making theater with artists with disabilities. And she actually brought, so she calls it disability gain, which she borrowed from the deaf community specifically. So within the last like decade, half a decade, um, the deaf community, uh, has come up with this term deaf gain, which is supposed to be the antidote to hearing loss, right? So the idea is that individuals who are deaf haven't lost something that makes the rest of us whole, but they have a perspective on the world that gives them an advantage in some situations. So like when Tallery was directing that show at La Jolla Playhouse this uh, fall in winter, the de- she would talk with the designers frequently. Um, and some of them were either in the deaf community or familiar with the deaf community. Um, and she would be like, yeah, well, I really want to make this car, but both of the actors who are going to be in the car are using wheelchairs already. So let's just make the wheelchairs, the, the wheels of the car. Yeah. And they were like, oh, so you want wheelchair game? And she was like, yes, wheelchair game. <laughs> so she's been talking about for this whole thing, she's been talking about pandemic gain or quarantine gain, right? Where it's like something that allows you to do something even, even though it feels like a loss, like, oh, we're not allowed to go outside. You know, we have to stay at home. It feels like this restriction, um, that there's something that comes from that that is actually a, a, a benefit. And I think there are some people who have a little bit of silver lining fatigue. Like they're like, I don't want to look for any more silver linings. Right, which, right. As someone who studies emotion regulation, I'm like, that pains me a little. I get where people are coming from, but I'm like, there's always a silver lining. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I-, I think... It, thinking a bit more functionally, like less like it's because silver lining, I think has like this more of an attitude or dispositional, like just look at the sunny side. And some people are like, I don't want to be sunny. But if you ask, you're asking people to do an analysis of functionally, what have they gained? That seems less 
floofy yeah. and, and flighty and seems a little bit more like, okay, what logically, what can we say that we've actually gained yeah, on I this mean, situation? I, th- I think to respond to this idea of pandemic gain, I feel much less complacent as a teacher. Uh, I can't speak for the students, but I feel like I'm much more alive to, hey, what's working? What's not? I'm much more alive and, yeah. and open and humble. I'm open to feedback. Um, whereas in a, for a class like an acting one class that I've taught 12 times or more uh, that I'm used to doing in person and I have the syllabus that works, I'm probably a little more s- sensitive than I need to be to feedback because I'm like, hey, I've proven it. It works. And my ego is really involved. <laughs> yeah. And here, I mean, my ego is definitely involved because I take pride in my teaching. But because I'm doing a, I'm doing it with a new format, I am just, uh, I have more of a beginner's mind, which is good. Um, I'm also grateful. The, for me, the most stressful week, uh, and I bet other teachers can attest to this, was the week leading up to the quarter starting. Mm. So there were some people who I think, without a break, jumped from in person to online. We had spring break, so we had this week, which was I found incredibly stressful because I probably was imagining this nightmare scenario, which has not played out. Like we show up online, the students show up, they do the work, um, they're present, they are committed, they are energized. I can read their energy through Zoom. I can tell when they're energized and excited and engaged. I can see when they get restless. Um, So I'm just grateful to be in the doing process of it rather than just the the imagining process of it. Yeah. Yeah. from my classes, uh, I'm just thinking if this is pandemic gain, one way to kind of take our situation and turn it into a positive is that, at least from my experience, I'm someone who likes to feel like I am in control of my circumstances. So I feel so much less in control of my circumstances these days, uh, especially for the movement and voice class where as an individual actor, if you're a serious actor, you want to create some sort of ritual for working on your body and working on your voice. This class is the opportunity. So the class becomes a sort of bomb um, or like the medicine to take during the pandemic to, um, mm. to create some organization and structure in your life. Um, I think the other thing I was thinking about that episode on hidden brain, the clicker episode, and it's about clicker training for human beings, which sounds really goofy. And there's this guy who uses it for his dogs, but he also is a orthopedic surgeon who teaches the residents using it. And the beauty of this, I'm not sure I would ever do with my students, but I just love the idea is that it removes the the need for the student to receive kind of emotional validation from the teacher. Um, And it's a lot more about just getting a click that says, yes, you got it. Yes, you got it. And I just wonder if, if the students take like the out of class work seriously, that there can be more of sort of self-affirmation, like I nailed it or I got it, or like, I feel really good about this and worry less about the teacher going like, yes, you know, that was awesome. So again, that just ties back to the, the, the discipline involved in the opportunity for uh, students to affirm the work that they're doing. Um, I'm fascinated by this idea of this argument that online teaching creates more distractions. I agree because uh, we are not in the same space. And I know a lot of people who maybe struggle with uh, attention (laughs) uh, really need to be in the physical presence of the teacher and the classmates to stay engaged. Uh, And I, I did have a student admit that he applied for a credit card online, not in my class, 
though maybe that happened too, but like in some, in some other class um, where, you know, I don't, I as teach. Like, welcome to my world and like students <laughs> are always on their laptops in my class. And so my classes have always been a battle against the <laughs> of them. Like I've had students buy clothes in my class. I had students watch videos in my class, chat with friends, apply for jobs. Oh my God. See, whereas, so this is what I'm going to get to is, is I actually also want to argue that this online teaching has fewer distractions, which is the social dynamic. Uh, and which is you aren't surrounded by 20 like acquaintances or your best friend sitting next to you. So you're going to be less distracted by that non-existent friend sitting next yeah. to you. And then the second thing that I, I've been thinking about is the things I teach involve physical, vocal, breath interaction and participation. So it's never a lecture. So even on Zoom, we're getting up and we're doing exercises that make us sweat, right? Or on Zoom, we're practicing breathing. Um, I'm getting them to lie on the floor. Uh, oh. We're playing improv can I game. Come, can yes. I come to your class? <laughs> no, seriously, Katir, you yes, you can. This is like what my life is missing right now. <laughs> and so I think it helps. And I think this is probably especially true for younger, like for elementary and middle school and even high school, but even at the college level or an adult level, that the more we are physically involving uh, the students, the more focused they will be. And, and honestly, just quick contextualization, we teach at DU, um, DU students on the whole, not completely, or mostly have uh, resources. They have um internet, they have computers. So I have not bumped up against uh, students who don't have access to a computer or access to relatively reliable internet. The internet is a little bit funky. There are, of course, students struggling with this. Um, so that is creates a whole other uh, more intense circumstance that I, at least in my two classes of only 12 and 13 students, have not bumped up against. Right. Uh, yeah. I, I think we also, this is probably going to change in the next half a decade, but DU students tend to also be um, in, the, in a relatively traditional age range for college students. Yeah. And so there aren't a lot of students who are working full time to put themselves through um, school. Um, and so therefore, like, we're not bumping against students who are like working in healthcare professions or who are first responders, you know, who would be working more rather than less during these times, yeah. nor are there a ton, there are some, but there aren't a ton of students who are, for example, not parenting full-time or homeschooling full-time. Yeah. That tends to be a burden a little bit more on the professor side of things right, right, um, right. than on the student side of things. But you can imagine like if you have a had a toddler that like, you know, getting down on the floor and lying on your back would be like invitation for your toddler to come climb on you or something. And that would yeah. be quite distracting. I just want to give a couple specific class examples, one from each class. In theater imagination, they, they're making these stories. Usually these stories that they are creating and sharing with the group are going to be presented in the classroom. And though they should be in the classroom, in the traditional setting, be thinking about their bodies in relationship to the architecture of the space, now they're home. So they are telling stories. Some of them are live, some of them are pre-recorded. that they are using the environment of their home. They're using the refrigerator. They're using the office space. They're using cool. their closet. They're using the outdoor space where they sit on the bench and they wait for the bus. They're using their bed to help tell the story. Um, really wonderfully today, I had a student tell a story through movement uh, meaning it was a soundless movement story where he used, because it was on Zoom, he used, I think, five 
virtual backgrounds on Zoom to uh-huh. tell the story. So it was him in relationship to this invisible woman. They meet, uh-huh. the background was in a classroom. They uh, go on vacation and he proposes. That was on a so beach. So you never see her? You never see her. He's looking, oh. the, audi- the audience is her. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I thought she was like in the background and then he like positioned himself to be like smooching her or something. No, he's fa- he's facing oh. you and you just have the two-dimensional background. Yeah. Interesting. And then they move, they have an ultrasound that was in the background. So they have a baby. I think that happened after the house. And then it was finally court because they got a divorce. But I was like, oh my God, we would never do that in a classroom. And here right. you are using- the, the ingredients that we have to create the ingredients for this world of the play. So that was super successful. Yeah, um, that's cool. And then one more example is I had in movement and voice, because we all have been feeling so many things, and I feel like my emotions are running at a, a higher frequency than they usually are. Um, I did this new exercise called sensation physicalities. I don't know if that's the best phrase, but I had my students think about, um, a, I called it a sensation. It could be a physical sensation, emotional, cognitive, however you want to describe it. And then they had to physicalize it for say 30 seconds. And, you know, they would physicalize stuck. They would physicalize restless. They would physicalize hunger. Uh, they would physicalize, um, relief, um, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I asked at the end, I said, was any of this cathartic? And they said, yeah, like in the act of, of, physicalizing it, we're sort of purging it from ourselves. We're getting it out. And I thought, ah, good. Like, like theater has this opportunity. Performance has this opportunity of catharsis with whether you're making the story, like you are the actor making the story, you're the audience watching it to at least temporarily purge ourselves of these intense pandemic feelings that we're feeling. Does that make sense? It does. In some ways I'm not totally shot like the general theme of like people use what new resources they have in this new world to be creative like that isn't like a shocking take-home point to me I feel like you know there's a lot of examples of you know people putting on a show in a black box that was originally supposed to be in a proscenium theater or you know like other sorts of like changing external circumstances that actually spark rather than you know diminish creativity um, but it's really fun. I, I, I am like fascinated by this idea of like what is retained and what is like not to, to go back to, to Rick's quote at the beginning, like what are the elements of certain types of instruction? What are the elements of certain types of art that you just can't, you know, recreate from a distance? And I think there is something about um, I, I'm always surprised every time I have like a meeting on Zoom and I have many, many meetings on Zoom yeah. these days because I, I always sort of look forward to it the way I would look forward to a phone call where I'm like, this will be functional. We'll exchange information. It'll be nice to hear their voice. But I never really quite expect to get the sort of social satisfaction that I would get out of an in-person interaction. And whenever I hang up, I'm always a little bit pleasantly surprised. I'm always a little bit like, that was nice. Like I actually saw their face. Like we reacted to each other. And I wonder if like for years I've, I've always been in Rick's camp of like live theater is so unique. And, and um, I've always thought that live theater was sort of like future proof because you Mm -hmm. can't, you know, you can't recreate the feeling of being in an audience with hundreds of people at the same time, all experiencing that one performance at the same, you know, that, uh, right. I wonder like if really 
a big, not, I think there's definitely some truth to that still, you know, there's something about like feeling the person next to you gasp at something like that you can't, you know, recreate. But I do think that like, there might be more to the synchronous nature of the interaction than the physical Mm. proximity. You know Mm. what I mean? Because Mm -hmm. I do think that there are things lost in asynchronous recordings. I feel like when when you show me a recording of even a really good, I've been loving like a lot of the availability of, um, you know, s- recordings of staged yes. plays that ha- that are now being released. Um, but there's something about like that was, that was recorded six years ago or that was recorded like six months ago or whatever. That's like a little bit less exciting. Yeah. And even like these sorts of, um, the sorts of like live concerts that they're doing or like live watch parties. So like last Friday, there was a, that thing you do watch party and like the cast was, you know, like zoomed in and like watching yeah. live and commenting. And like, there's something about like, they're doing this right now from their home in LA. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah. like yeah. there's something exciting about being, even though you could, you know, a million other people could be like watching yeah. that stream. Yeah. There's something about it being happening in the same, at the same time that is really special. Yeah. I I'm realizing that in this, in uh, the work in both of my classes, I allow them to either pre-record it and screen share. Uh, and so we're watching this pre-recorded piece or they can do it live. And I, I totally respect both. I think uh, in, in many ways, the pre-recorded makes a lot of sense because you have a little more control of your environment. But I agree with you that the live kind of wakes me up even more because I'm witnessing yeah. it in real time. Yeah. And that feels, that has a spontaneity to it um, that maybe the pre-recorded has less. Um, I, I think I, this is what I'm beginning to want to decipher, which is like, what is the actual loss and what is actually a thing we think we've lost on Zoom but haven't? I think the actual right loss is we are not breathing together. We are not making eye contact and we are not, there's that thing about heartbeats sinking with sync, like in sync together, like everyone mm. sort of breathes or mm-hmm. their heartbeats the same way when you're watching a piece of theater <laughs> and uh, in, in, in shared space, you know, and whether or not that's true. I, but, but again, like, I wonder to like, this is a totally testable question. I wonder how important it is to be in the same space for that. Like, I wonder if you are witnessing the same thing at the same time, if that's what causes the synchronous heartbeat and not sitting elbow to elbow with somebody. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know either. And you know, the best design will probably be able to not we, cause I don't have time, to do this. <laughs> but like, you know, the best design would again, test some intermediate things. Right. So like you could test, you know, the Broadway theater where you're like practically sitting on a stranger's lap, you know, sort of thing. <laughs> and then the, like everybody at home, you know, streaming the same thing over, over the internet. And then what will probably in all likelihood be what the return to theater looks like, which is the audience members in the same physical room, but far apart from each other. Yeah. yeah. I'm looking forward to that day. <laughs> um, I, it's going to be so hard not to hug everybody. I know. It's, <laughs> I to I, hug everybody I, I see. I know. I know. I, I was talking to an engineer neighbor who's like, this was several weeks ago now, but he goes, I still go into work. There's one other person there. And, and, you know, but we're engineers. It doesn't matter. Like we just leave each other alone. I was like, Oh God, like theater people, they just like make out with each other every time they see each other. <laughs> and I, I have missed that, that not the making out because 
that's a fantasy, but the like the hugging and the the making eye contact and the you know the seeing each other in that way. Um, yeah. It ties a little bit to what I'm observing in my kids real quickly, which is um, they're very different. And my you know one is super social and one in- enjoys his solitude a lot, but they're both struggling with not being around their friends, physically being around their friends, and. Uh, my husband was calling it like the physicality of friendship, that relationships, I think, especially at a young age, and especially if you think about like elementary and middle school, is based so much on that like spontaneous, like physical interaction where you're just there together. And that, yeah. and and it feels when you have to like plan a Zoom conversation or FaceTime with your friend, it can feel less special. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It, um, so my, uh, my daughter, who's, who's almost five at this point, um, has daily Zooms with her preschool class. Yeah. They're just half an hour. Her teachers are really smart. They just do like a quick, you know, song together. And then they have like a daily question and then they have like, they sometimes read a book and then they go. Um, but it, it's some days she's really engaged with it. And then other days she struggles and she sits, we, we mirror the iPad that she's on to the TV. So her friends are huge, right? She can see. Yeah like all of them. And she likes the gallery view where she can see like, you know, eight or 10 or 12 of them at a time. Um, but sometimes she like sort of starts to get up off her chair and like leave, you know, or she'll call out to us. She'll see us in the house and be like, mommy, mommy, come over. And I'll say, no, 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 you're on your call. Like talk to your friends. Uh, and Mm. one day last week she said, but mommy come here. I'm lonely. Yeah. And I said, but you're, but you're talking to all of your friends. And she just looked at me and she said, but they're not really here. So I'm lonely. Heartbreaking, but very, I I get it. I get it. Yeah. It's fascinating because I, I, I can feel it makes me think about the one time I did distant Reiki where I felt like someone was actually present or holding presence for me, even though they were like a thousand miles away, which is like, I can still feel my students energy, even though I'm losing, I'm not in physical proximity and I am missing the sort of that, that temporal spontaneity that happens when you're actually right next to each other and not like over technology. But like, as I've already articulated, I can, I can feel their moods. I can feel their level of engagement They're As you would say, they're the, I don't know, level of valence or their valence, (laughs) like in terms of how like present they are on the zoom call. I can sense that. I don't know why. Um, but I'm just probably taking cues off of what they look like, you know? Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, as I was sort of joking about writing this as a study, um, it's actually not so much of a joke and, one of the things that has always fascinated me about um, doing research on people in general and like, you know, the subfield of psychology that I've been most exposed to is that most of the researchers I know are relatively opportunistic in, in, in a good, smart, you know, way. Um, and in that they will take situations like this really unusual situations that we've never encountered in our lifetime and one of their first thoughts is like, we should do a study. We should do yeah. a study about this. So I actually was in, I started doing psychology research when I was in college. So I was um, doing theater, of course, all the time. Hmm. Um, but I was also a, a human biology major and I started to do an honors thesis. Um, and I started working on it the summer of 2001. And I was collecting data for my my honors thesis um, on September 11th, 2001. Oh, wow. And uh it was trippy. Um, you know, it, it was, it was weird to be around other people, uh, you know, all of our, uh, not dissimilar to, to this, you know, our daily schedules were sort of thrown out. Uh, 
the window. And one of the faculty members that I was doing my honors thesis with was a pretty famous memory researcher. Oh, wow. And within the field of memory, there's this phenomenon called flashbulb memories, which is people's enhanced sense of vividness for especially emotional um, unique events. So this is like those um, studies that where people say, I'll never forget where I was when I heard that JFK was shot or, you know, I'll never forget where I was, you know, on 9-11. And so within, you know, a day, there were all of these researchers, um, a lot of them focused on memory from around the country and around the world who were collaborating on um, saying we need to get baseline memory data now. We need to get people's reports of where they were, what they were doing, what they what they know, what they you know what they were paying attention to, so that we can ask them again in six months, and a year, and, and ten years, and twenty years, and we can look at the accuracy of their memories. And I just remember being like, who is thinking about running a study right now? Right, <laughs> like, right. Who who can? But but again, like all of these big names in, in memory research were doing it, and you know over the last. Um, you know, that, that was nearly 20 years ago. Over the last 20 years, I've seen this happen again and again, where you see waves of, you know, psychology studies come out on people's memory for the Boston Marathon bombings, people's memories for Hurricane Sandy, um, you know, and so not surprisingly, there's been this huge swell of researchers who are studying you know, um, health behaviors related to the pandemic, um, how seriously people are taking the social distancing recommendations, um, people's well-being at home, people's um, changes in their social contacts. How much are they connecting with other people over mm. voice, over video? Over, you know, how much are they interacting with other people in person but at a distance? I have um, I have somewhat mixed feelings about it because I think actually there is. Um, as you were pointing out some of the disparities that impact right. students' abilities to engage, I think that there's a lot of circumstances that impact people's ability to launch a brand new research study, you yeah. know, at the drop of a hat. And many of the very brilliant psychologists I know who ha- who are now homeschooling children full-time yes. don't, don't have time to launch these new studies. But um, but there are a lot of people who are who are collaborating across institutions, um, you know, being smart about, you know, help it, helping others um, who, who might not have the time to do this, who are asking these sorts of questions. So, Kateri, can we um, can we talk briefly about how theater companies are faring? And and I will continue that conversation with our guests during the interview. Yeah, let's do yeah. it. So the Denver community has a ton of really wonderful theaters. I want to start with the Denver Center because it's the biggest one. Um, and because it is so, uh, its fate or its health is in some ways uh, attached to Broadway. So Broadway, I believe, recently um, announced that it was going to be closed through early June. And this affects the Denver Center because they are not going to be producing um you know, the, they will not be producing and housing and presenting the tours of these these Broadway shows. I have a quote from an, a local article. It says, this brings the nonprofit's total tally of canceled events to well over 500. Five theater shows, including heavy hitters like Mean Girls and the SpongeBob musical, 19 rental events, two fundraisers, and a whopping 523 educational classes and school programs mm. have been called off. Um, in the face of a global pandemic, it looks like the show simply must not go on. I mean, that's a kind of clever, cute statement. Um, I think the show will go on just in a, in a different way. Um, and then, of course, equally gutting is the impact this has on the local theater commuting community, including DCPA employees. So Janice Sinden, who's the CEO of the Denver Center, 
said in a press release, to help offset millions of dollars in deficit caused by these cancellations, we also have made the painful decision to reduce our staffing costs by more than 50% through layoffs, unpaid leave, reduced hours, and salary cuts. So that doesn't necessarily mean mm. that they are uh, simply firing 50% of their workforce. What that does mean is, of course, some people are laid off, a lot of people are furloughed, and everyone, I think, on up, even at the executive level, has is taking some sort of pay cut or work reduction. So I believe everyone, um, every employee of the Denver Center is impacted in some way, which is, it's devastating. Um, and they, of course, are not alone at all. Um, there there are of course companies who are creating work and they're creating work online. Um, uh, the Arvada center has this beautifully crafted, a black spot, black box season that they've been doing now for three, four five years or more under the guidance of Lynn Collins. And they're doing what are called living room talkbacks where they, um, everyone zooms in the actors zoom in, uh, through, you know, in their quote unquote living room. And they have a talkback about the play, even if they're unable to produce the play. Um, Betsy, the Boulder ensemble theater company has something. I love the title called the ghost light series. I think, uh, once a week or maybe once every couple of weeks, they put together a, a sort of clever, video about what some of their community members are doing and a local lab uh, or local theater company has something called the Colorado Lab Daily where they do a a morning daily prompt playwriting prompt and they've gotten um, uh, submissions from all over the world of people sort of sending in short plays I think uh, in response to some of those prompts yeah Uh, so yeah (laughs) Yeah, it seems to me that, you know, that there are some aspects of theater making that are, you know, again, maybe not quite uh, optimized, but are really resistant to this change. You know, playwriting is one um, that seems like it could really, that many of the phases of playwriting, even some of the like initial reads, you know, would would be possible to do, um, you know, remotely and, and get feedback on it and sort of move forward. There, there's a fair amount of performance that does happen sort of orally. And so yeah, there is an opportunity to sort of um, to, to lean into that as sort of performance. I think the other thing that's kind of interesting to me is that um, there's two things that are interesting to me, I think, about this. One is that in a heartbreaking way, I think theater companies um, and all of their the other support industries. I have friends, for example, who work in like theater discount ticket, the theater discount ticket industry, you know, which is really mm. suffering right now. And that sort of thing. It's really similar to the restaurant industry yeah. in that like a lot of people just simply aren't spending their money to do those things. And they probably won't like they probably won't make that up at some point, right? Like the people who have the income to do that, unless they they are they have the generosity and foresight and the ability, because some of them are also losing income, right. um, you know, to donate that to to support the theater company. The theater companies will just start again, and they'll want people to pay for tickets to come see new shows. But it's not like they're right. going to go back and make up for all of those dates that were canceled and all of those tours that didn't come through. And I, I think that's interesting. That sort of I mean, I do think there is a lot of loyalty and sort of taking care of your your tribe or your your group, your your theater family. I know sure. that you know Colorado Shakespeare Festival is taking their 2020 season and just postponing it to 2021. So if you mm-hmm. got a if you got a job with them in 2020. Uh, and you you get to work with them in 2021. And I think things, places like Lincoln Center and some other New York theaters are just kind of postponing stuff several months. Um, but yes, I agree that some stuff is just going to get lost, which is unfortunate. Um, 
Uh, to tie it back to the to DU and the theater department, you know, our seniors are tasked with uh, directing and producing one acts, which, of course, they've done a ton of prep sometimes in the fall, definitely during our winter quarter uh, to figure out uh, uh to do, you know, the analysis of the play and to, to have a bunch of design meetings and have a whole director design presentation. And then the spring quarter is intended to direct, uh, to actually rehearse and produce these for an audience, but they're still doing them. They just are adjusting. So some of them are, a lot of them are doing radio plays. You talked about the oral, um, you know, how obviously just hearing the word spoken is a huge part of the theater experience. Um, some are animating, some might turn into puppet shows. Um, some are recasting and then using people they live with to tell the story. Um, so we're, we're figuring it out. It felt, it, it felt like the best solution. Um, you know, we wanted them to be able to do something, <laughs> but of course it was impossible to do the thing they originally intended. And to be honest, one of them said a couple of weeks ago, like, you know, this sucks, but like we will be able to look back and say that we did this and we are this unique singular class, uh, hopefully, <laughs> um, who knows what a year from now looks like, but who, who yeah. we can look back and be really, really proud of, of pivoting and making and still being, you know, making art in a, in a different environment. And I just was that grace. Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, that's valuable. a wonderful mindset to have, like this will be yeah. our, you know, th th this, this will be sort of, um, the thing everybody remembers about the spring of 2020. Yeah. There've been a lot of Broadway stars who are trying to create um, online spaces for students who are not able to perform in their senior, in their high school senior musical. Yeah. A lot of people who finally got the big part that they've always wanted. And then like anything goes is canceled, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is just, you know, just so, yeah, I just can't imagine like that, that yeah, how, how heartbreaking that is. Yeah, I mean, I find myself in my Zoom classes like over gesticulating, which is saying a lot because I'm a, <laughs> I'm pretty gestural. <laughs> yeah. I want to see what that looks like. <laughs> gotta, yeah, I know. You got to visit my classes. My face is like, yeah, it's all over the place. And then I do these massive like <laughs> nods and shaking of heads and hand gestures. Cause it's like, if I'm not there with you, I got to just drive home, you know, that I'm, I'm there with you. And of course I, I don't think I'm alone, but you know, I'm like probably speaking way too loudly during it. Cause I'm like, yeah. oh, I'm good. I'm going to reach you. I'm going to reach you with my voice. Totally. Um, I think, you know, going back to uh, our season two, episode five uh, uh, episode on uh, humor. God, I need it now more than ever. Like <sighs> it's, it's joyful to hear a joke and to watch something funny. Cause I'm like, yeah, like that's exactly <laughs> what I need right now. And I think the, the final thing I have to say is, is, you know, we're stuck with ourselves more. And, you know, for, for many of us, that's challenging, of course, uh, because there's certain things we like to run away from. But it also allows you, allows us to investigate how we kind of move on autopilot with ourselves. And mm. I mean, some of my personal gifts are, I tend to move too fast. And I think the stressors in my family come from me trying to do too much in one day. And that has shifted. And um, I have noticed also, especially because like my emotional landscape is more heightened than it usually is. I'm like, oh, this is like, this is, it's kind of under a microscope or a magnifying glass where it's like, oh, oh, that stresses me out. And it probably would stress me out even not in a pandemic. And I'm just seeing more clearly <laughs> right now. So there's this opportunity to yeah. get off of autopilot and to, um, as much as we can enjoy this process, kind of investigate 
ourselves as, dare I say, characters. I don't want to, I don't want to hit it too much on the nose, but I think, I think there is some useful actor training in there. Yeah. I do think that people's, I think that I've noticed um, people going through, it's almost like the whole population is like popcorning anxiety at different times. Like it hits Mm -hmm. different people at different times. You were saying like that week before classes started was really bad for you. And, you know, I know some people who um, have sort of like rallied to hold it together for several weeks and right around last week, which was week three in the quarter, um, a lot of people I know were starting to break down a little bit and just to let their exhaustion show and just be like, I don't know if I can keep doing this for the rest of the quarter. Like I, you yeah. know, I rallied and I pulled it together and now I'm just running out of steam. Um, and likewise, I think that different people have, I think, you know, here in Colorado, I, I can't, I guess I can't speak for you, but, um, you know, I know a handful of people who have actually been directly, their health has been directly impacted by the pandemic. Yeah. I know several people, um, who, I know several people who um, have lost loved ones, but I myself have not lost a loved one, you know, as, as of yet. And so I think that like the actual, like different people have different moments where it kind of becomes real and becomes tangible and becomes, you know, sort of like the, the, the magnitude of what's happening in the world kind of, um, you know, reaches them. And so at those moments, I think people's emotions are really raw and really out there. And, and as we've talked about before, like, an actor doesn't need to have those moments in order to be a good actor, but most actors, when that happens, they'll be simultaneously experiencing it. And there'll be this little teeny tiny voice. That's like, pay attention. Pay attention. (laughs) Remember this for your work. Save (laughs) as. Oh, I love that. Save as. Yeah. Save as. And the the top down and the bottom up, you know, like those of us, especially who like to be in control and our identity is wrapped up in like, I'm an intelligent person and my Uh life is organized. Like it's, it's less, it's less organized these days. And so then more of my sort of bottom up lizard brain is, is coming out and that's scary. Um, but it's, it's, it's okay. It's yeah. okay. It is okay. And I think that, you know, we've, we've talked a little bit about the use of an emotion regulation strategy called acceptance, um, you know, before. And one of the interesting things about acceptance is that it actually has, you can use it in sort of two different ways. One of them is to accept your circumstances, right? So I think, you know, six weeks ago, eight weeks ago, there were some people who were a little bit in denial about the fact that this was coming for Colorado, you know, that it, this was going to impact our life in major ways, um, you know, that, that there were actually going to be drastic changes to the way that things were functioning in our society really soon. And so there is a, a, a way of saying this is the way the world is now. This is the new normal. I can't yeah. do anything about it. Like sort of letting go of that control. There's also a, an element of accepting your own emotional response, right? And not saying like, oh, I'm such a weirdo for crying in my room, you know, about yeah. about this or, oh, I, I, I'm I I'm so um, upset with myself that I got so angry with my children. Like, yeah, you're tripping over your children 24-7. Like, of course, right. you're going to get angry with them from time right. to time. So I think both kinds of acceptance are potentially really transformative in this environment, like to both accept the situation and say this was not something anyone signed up for. This wasn't something any of us would have designed or had control over. Um, but what can we do now, you know, to, to shape our little micro worlds Yeah, and, and then, you know, to give yourself permission to feel all the feels, a lot of people experienced grief 
you yeah. know, in we 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 sent out on social media, a lot of people experienced grief in the opening weeks of this because they had to let go of a vision they had for the way their life was going to be in April and May of 2020. Right. You know, there's a grief that happens where you let go of that yeah. expectation. You let go of that. Teachers had to let go of how their classes were going to be. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and I wonder how kids are processing this. Like, yeah, and I found it. Birthday parties. I mean, little kids, right. birthday, I, that's like one of the like silliest things, but when you're five or seven or eight or, you know, like it's so important, it's so important. Yeah. And your next birthday seems so far away. <laughs> Whereas those of us, you know, I know. A little bit up there. It's like, oh, year by year, it passes yeah. quickly enough. <laughs> it, it, part of the way I, I understand acceptance as you talk about it is also uh, actually saying what you're feeling out loud to someone you trust, like a partner or a friend. That by me saying like, I feel really overwhelmed right now out loud, that that also helps me process and come to terms with it. Um does I think it can. I think yeah. it can. I don't, I don't think it's necessarily required. I think some people can just internally come to terms with their, the emotions that they're having. But mm-hmm. I do think that, that it probably accelerates the acceptance process. If you're able to label what it is you're feeling, say it out loud to someone else. And, you know, in part, what you're looking for, when you say out loud, to some, you're, you're looking for someone else to say, that's okay that you're feeling that. Yeah. You know, okay. Yeah. Let me give you a hug. Like, that's all right. Yes. Yes. Oh, I miss hugging you. Oh, okay. Thank you. This is great. Yeah. Up next is my conversation with three local theater leaders, Lynn Collins, Allison Watrous, and Anthony Powell. Keep listening. Thanks. I am thrilled to welcome three Colorado theater professionals to the podcast, Lynn Collins, Allison Watrous, and Anthony Powell. Lynn Collins is the Artistic Director of Plays for the Arvada Center's Black Box. She produces a four-play season, including a three-play spring repertory. Recently, she directed Plaza Suite and Small Mouth Sounds. Lynn directed for six seasons at the Colorado Shakespeare Festival, including Much Ado About Nothing, Romeo and Juliet, and Noises Off, which received a True West Award for Best Comedy. She was an affiliate artist and resident director with the Foothill Theatre Company in California from 1990 to 2009, and she studied at the American Conservatory Theatre in San Francisco, HB Studio in New York, and with Stella Adler, and she holds an MA from San Francisco State University. Allison Watrous is the Executive Director of Education and Community Engagement at the Denver Center for the Performing Arts, which has been her artistic home for the past 25 years as an educator, actor, and director. Allison and her team manage a wide variety of educational programming, serving more than 142,000 students per year. Allison is a collaborative leader of artists, teaching artists, actors, and educators, as well as an innovative teacher passionate about working with students of all ages. She develops new curriculum that explores using theater as a springboard to teach various subjects. Allison has taught at the New Victory Theater, the New York Film Academy, University of Northern Colorado, the National Theater Conservatory, the International College of Beijing, and the University of Denver. She's currently on faculty at Denver School of the Arts and the University of Colorado, Denver. Her acting work includes various roles with the Denver Center Theater Company, DCPA Cabaret, Curious Theater Company, and Sistress Productions. 
And Anthony Powell began his professional theater career on a bus touring the United States with John Houseman's The Acting Company. He served as associate artistic director with the Denver Center Theater Company for 18 seasons, appearing on stage and directing over 25 productions there. Last year, Anthony staged The Moors for the Arvada Center's Black Box Repertory and has served as artistic director of Stories on Stage since 2010. Oh, I'm so grateful to have all of you and all at the same time on the podcast. Thank you so much. So I have uh, some questions to get the conversation rolling. A big one to start. How has the coronavirus pandemic impacted each of your respective theater companies? Oh man! Well, we were um, uh, in the in the midst of our rep when things closed down. We had opened a production of Murder on the Orient Express and a production of Midsummer Night's Dream, and uh, we were shut down the day we were to open Small Mouth Sounds. Um, so we had three plays, um, up and running that all were ended. Um, so, uh, that was heartbreaking as you can imagine. Um, and, uh, had to, we, we held out for a while thinking maybe there'd be some way for us to come back in May, kept actors on contract for a couple of weeks and eventually realized we could, there was nothing we could do. Um, so I had to lay off all these wonderful um, ensemble actors, mostly um, just in, in terms of the art, uh, heartbreaking to, to have, it was a really good season. I was really happy with it. So to not be able to play it out was heartbreaking. Obviously, financially, I'm sure we'll talk about a whole nother um, can of worms. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I'm Anthony. Uh, yeah, it was, I actually sent Lynn an email on opening night of Small Mouth Sound saying, congratulations, it's so cool you're going ahead with the show. Later that day, she sent me an email saying, I have to go to a meeting upstairs, so stay tuned. So, I mean, it was that much of a cliffhanger for you guys. It broke my heart. Um, we were comparatively lucky at Stories on Stage. We Our March show was scheduled for the 8th. It was just a few days before everything really started to hit the fan. Allison was an actor in that show, as a matter of fact. Uh, all these overlapping qualities here. <laughs> but uh, we were really lucky because the 8th, it was just a few days before everything started to fall apart. And I was concerned that our audience wouldn't come. I was already getting scared myself about attending larger events. There was a CBCA function I just took a pass on. I thought, I'm, not, you know, of, of all the things I'm going to, you know, take a risk on, uh, you know, I, I think I'll go for groceries. And so I didn't know if our audience would show up and God bless them, they did. And we had a very good final show. And then it was just a few days after that, that the Dairy Center where we office closed down. Allison, what about for the Denver Center? Um, yeah, so I mean, as everybody mentions, and I think we're feeling it so deeply as a community, and as Anthony mentioned, like there's such incredible overlap with artists, obviously, that are at the Denver Center and artists that are at Arvada and just such collective impact across the board. So um, speaking for education and community engagement, essentially from the time that this all started happening mid-March until kind of where we are now, there's been about 450 classes and events that have had to be um, paused. 
So we were in the middle of our um, winter session. We kind of missed our final two classes, and then we had to cancel our spring session. Um, we have moved forward with canceling June for summer for children and teens and all of our adult programming. Um, and also, you know, the theater company had to then time out kind of what was the completion of the season. Like Lynn mentioned, it was kind of was the same, but the production of Until the Flood did not move forward and Choir Boy did not move forward. And then the Broadway titles that were coming into town, Mean Girls was one of those. So we just are sort of like absolutely seeing the same impact. I mean, theater is one of those obviously very beautiful and incredible things, but its core mission is bringing people together in common and collaborative spaces. So it, you know, is the impact is massive. And I just keep um, just thinking, especially, you know, it's such an incredible art form, but that's also still very based on gig economy in the sense of that, you know, teaching artists that were working for me were in the amazing company that Lynn had formed, were working for stories on stage, were guest teaching at BU. So like the artist community, like that collective impact and our incredible artists and the city just that's the part that I just constantly oh just is, is really really heartbreaking but yeah the impact is is huge I personally was kind of a, a wild story was in rehearsal at Denver School of the Arts for a production of The Wolves and we were supposed to open the following week but I was in meetings you know of course every day at the Denver Center really trying to plan and us being on city property we're really in lockstep with the mayor and obviously with arts and venues and all those things. So we were kind of like seeing like, oh goodness, like this is really gonna escalate very quickly. And so the gals, you know, we just sat down in one rehearsal and I was like, okay, we might only have today. Yeah. So let's use the gift of whatever this time is and come together. And at that point it was like, maybe we'll perform for an audience, maybe we won't. I mean, I know Lynn, just because obviously I've been so close to so many cast members of Small Mouth Sounds, that essentially it was kind of the same of like, we have today. And like, what an amazing gift to share today. And especially for the young people, which a lot of them were seniors, which I just think of those rites of passage for people, what they won't have like their prom and their final show and their banquet, those like little moments of grief where you're like, ah, poor young person, but that they you know, just gather together to to really just share it and put it out there and get their their people there that needed to witness it for them. So they had an evening performance. And, you know, it was one of those like incredible theater moments where the TD was like hanging netting and finishing the set as we were like doing moments of rehearsal and doing the final tech moments that we could. And then parents were coming in. I mean, you know, and then they performed for students the next day. And then the schools closed, you know. Yeah. I'm glad you got those couple performances in. I am so happy that they got to share it, especially with their parents, because they did beautiful work. I'm wondering, Allison, if you could start the conversation that Lynn alluded to about both the, maybe any statistics in terms of the numbers of people and um, financial losses or the impact of those things for each of your companies. I don't know the exact numbers for the Denver Center, but the financial impact is is really, really big. Obviously, just as I mentioned before, we're all in the art form of gathering people together in theaters that are more than 10 people. We're gonna have we're gonna see amazing theater that's gonna be happening in backyards with you know social distancing of 10 people, but we have very, very big spaces. You know, the Buell is 2,600. So the, there is large, large financial impact. I don't know the exact dollar amount, but we have had to endure staffing reductions of about 50%. 
So just speaking from the education team, um, we have a team of, of teachers and administrative staff that support all of our programming across the board. And the majority, the vast majority of that team is on a furlough until June 30th. So that, yeah, that, that kind of just speaks to what that impact has been. Um, and other programming that had to time out. Obviously, all of our programming that's connected to schools, things like the DPS Shakespeare Festival, Bobby G's, like those things that kind of, the spring is such a celebratory time, especially for schools and school programming. So all those things have had to pause and time out. But even just that like staffing impact of 50% is really huge. It's huge. This is Lynn. I'll talk a little bit about that. Again, I don't also don't have all the numbers and they change daily. Um, uh, we at the Arvada Center is um, a theater venue, but we're also an education venue and a gallery venue and a summer concerts venue. Um, we obviously lost um, all the income from the repertory season um, once we closed. Um, we're still waiting to see a lot of patrons are donating their tickets back instead of asking for refunds. That's been a big help, big bottom line help. Some have taken gift certificates for future um, work, believing in the future, which makes us feel good. Um, uh, we were just to, about to start on our main stage uh, rehearsals for um, Something Rotten. Those were canceled the day before rehearsals were to begin. That whole production had essentially been built so that a lot of money out the door and no money in the door. Um, all our education programming has been canceled. We're still making decisions about summer um, camps, um, working on some social distancing ideas for some summer camps, um, particularly places for people who are um, essential workers to have their kids in the summer. Um, education's been very creative about putting some classes online. The whole dance program has gone online, which is very cool and exciting. Um, number of other things online. We're still working on summer concerts, our outdoor concert series. We've canceled all our June concerts. Um, uh, still trying to then move some of them to later in the summer, waiting to see what that all means. Bottom line's been horrible. Um, we have been lucky. None of our full-time um, uh, staff has had to be um, laid off um, in part because we got a CARE Act loan, um, a payroll protection loan. So we have 50 people that are still employed, roughly of our full-time benefited staff. A lot of our part-time staff also were would have been furloughed for some of the summer anyway they always are so that they had kind of built that into their lives a little bit so it was maybe a little less of a shock um, to their systems it was just an earlier furlough but millions we've lost millions of dollars we don't know that we don't know the number um, yet but it's it's a huge um, loss that we're you know looking at every day yeah Anthony do you thank you Lynn do you want to add anything Anthony well it's so funny. I mean, the, I think one of the main things for me about this pandemic, the ironies just keep piling up. I mean, and it's none of it's funny, but I guess it's funny. As a tiny nonprofit, there's just two of us in the office. You know, I spend normal times w wishing we were bigger and uh, hoping and praying for bigger budgets and more toys to play with. And, you know, suddenly it's in a sense, we're very lucky we're so small because we too got a small business loan, thank God. 
And that's going to tide us over uh, our, our salaries, because like all nonprofits, we work on a very small margin and there really wasn't anything in there for us. And so thank God we're able to kind of, it just bought us time so that we can stop and think about what the future holds and, and maneuver a little bit. And I wondered, Anthony, since uh, a lot of your programming is text and voice-based and still incredibly valuable and important to see the actor performing that, if you uh, felt luckier that you could, it was it, did, does it feel translatable into Zoom? I know you've done a couple of those the past month. Yeah, we've done two of them now and we've got a couple more scheduled and they are, they being a Luddite, being terrible with technology myself, it has been terrifying jumping into this thing. I, am, <laughs> I was nervous as a cat for the first one we did, but you're right. It, it does lend itself quite well, uh, you know, when, when the picture holds and the video holds. Right. And and we've been able to because of this loan we've been been able to offer a few of these for free to our audience really just to say God love you we appreciate you so much thank you for being there for us we want to be there for you and and Zoom is making that possible these new technologies are making that possible and and so here I am diving in with both feet because that's that's the future that's yeah. the present the future. Thank you. I'm wondering for all of you, if your company's beginning to shift its programming and creative um, priorities or, or reconfiguring kind of uh, um, what's important to you in terms of what you can produce or who you can take care of, uh, given how much, you know, how the circumstances have, have shifted so dramatically. I mean, I think from, um, you know, just even rolling around in my brain and I, you know, I am experimenting with, you know, we, there's so many things that we don't know right now, obviously, in terms of, you know, how long will social distancing be in place? Will, you know, what will happen with schools? What will happen with the amount of people that is considered a large group of people? When will people feel, I mean, I think that we really are talking at, with leadership at the Denver Center of like, one of the most important things is like, when will people feel safe? When, when will folks feel safe to come back into a theater space, a classroom and share an arm rest with someone, be in a scene with someone, you know, um, how do we also protect the amazing artists coming into this space to rehearse and all those things. So I think that, you know, right now, even just from my education brain is that like, I am really thinking about how we kind of prepare a two pronged approach where we prepare like, what does it look like to offer online? And then what does it look like to also join people in a space? And like, especially for programs that go into schools that we're prepared to deliver completely, you know, digital content and be able to teach online and teach through Zoom and then do the same for, for classes and really starting to think about what that might look like and start to build those things up. So um, that's kind of where just my brain is now thinking of, of next, season and how we start to build those things. So yeah, I think it's, you know, in the best, like the heart of a theater artist is a creative problem solver. I mean, that's one of my things that I love about Ann Penner so much. She's like the greatest creative problem solver on the planet because her brain just, just gets going. No, are you kidding? Are you? Yeah. That's why I love to call you. And I'm like, just talk to me. Tell me what you're thinking. Oh, thank uh, you so much. No, of course. And I have reached out to amazing teachers within the theater community, you know, teaching middle school, teaching high school, just to say, can I join you 
because I would love to, of course, support what they're doing and also learn from what is being built online. And so there's been some really beautiful gifts that have launched from there. And I think that the, you know, we're going to just see the creative power of the theater world shift and be very, you know, what's that word? Be able to morph and change and adapt and be malleable to what can be this world now. So, so I think it'll be both, hopefully. So many more questions right now than answers in terms of, of what I do. Um, uh, we're looking at, we had already, we had the week before all this happened, we had announced next season um, in a, in a um, wonderful marketing desire to get our season out earlier than we ever had before, which we all regret so much now when they worked so hard to do it. Um, so we're looking at, in, for Black Box, we're looking at changing programming that we've announced. Um, it's, uh, our programming is probably more, more ambitious than our bottom line's going to allow. We're having a lot of conversations about, um, in my small theater, we see 200, about what does it look like to do, to work, to do half an audience um, and maintain, you know, two, three seats between people. Is it even viable bottom line wise? Um, uh, the bigger venues have a more challenging problem in that regard to some degree that, you know, if they say we can bring back, if, you know, a hundred seat, um, Theaters, can we can we go ahead and do that? So we're we're talking about that all the time. Also, the front of house, our front of house is all volunteers and largely older people. Um, uh, we can't possibly ask them to have you know hand to hand contact um, with patrons. Um, so all of those sorts of things. So I think we all are just sort of playing out. Okay, what if it's this scenario? What if it's this scenario? What if the scenario is nothing? um for a year i mean we we do live theater there's no way to do live theater through zoom in really um we've been doing little like um talkbacks and living we call them living room chats and we have gathered people to talk about the the work we do um but lynn, lynn can you talk briefly about the living room talk back what that is sure so um uh, we've done three so far, and basically they were talkbacks about the season that we didn't finish. So we did one for Murder on the Orient Express, one for Midsummer, and one for Small Mouse Sounds. And uh, we were able to uh, funnel some money to actors to join us. So anything that we can do that doesn't require a union contract right now, because that's uh, that's a whole nother, another complicated story about what's going on right now. Um uh, so we just sort of just talked about the play, had video and photos and had, you know, a, a Zoom conversation with five or six um, director, actor groups to talk about each of those. Um, again, it's just something we're putting out for audience engagement to keep our, our patrons um, sort of um, engaged with us and to remind them that we miss them and, and that that thing the midst of the, the small mouth sound one was a just a lot of actors crying um <laughs> that, that one was was because we couldn't really talk we were assuming that at least some people who zoomed in on zoom had seen the other two but 
we had only had two previews of Small Mouth. So we ended up talking a lot about how it felt to do that play at that time. And um, I cried and I never cry. It was just really emotionally. Um, that one was a, a heartbreaker in every way. Um, but trying to, you know, sort of, I think, to remind ourselves that we're all here. Yeah. And to remind our audiences that um, and the people that are attached to what we do, that we're thinking about the work and planning for future work and all those things. Um, it's been nice. It's been a really lovely thing to do. And we're going to do more. We're going to do some workshops. We're going to do a big next season if we, when we feel safe enough to sort of know what next season is with some of the changes we're making. Yeah. Big sort of chat with, you know, directors and actors and, and that sort of thing. So trying to stay, trying to stay present. I love that your conversation is, is taking care of audience too, right? Because they're the final piece of the puzzle. They are part of the community, not just the employees of the theater. So the idea of not just trying to take care of uh, the people who maybe lost paychecks, but those who are supporting and participating as, as audience members is also very important. Anthony, do you want to add anything? The original question was sort of, is how is your company um, pivoting into any new priorities or new ways of programming? Well, we have started those, you know, these Zoom productions and they're, they're fantastic and it's a wonderful way to reach out. I, I have a feeling our audience and other audiences who are watching theaters kind of wrestle with this. Right now, I think Zoom and the other available technologies are, are lovely for the audience and they're just glad to have you know, some contact with the theater companies they love. But I think it's human nature that soon, I think people, the audience are going to start expecting a higher quality uh, in terms of how we deliver this stuff. So that's where we are right now. And I mean, it's in the very early stages of this, but what would it look like and, and what would it cost to, you know, film an entire show and, and deliver it, you know, the way, I don't know, the, the ballet companies or the opera companies do, you know, and it's a, it's a pay-per-view kind of thing. Um, because of course, as as Lynn pointed out, no one knows what's going to happen in the future. We we can we have ideas, and what's the old joke? Uh, how do you make God laugh? Tell God your plans. Uh, <laughs> this, this is a good thing to have, you know, <laughs> tattooed your forehead right now. Yeah, um, but we're but we're starting to investigate some of these things because you know, I'm I'm certainly hopeful we can get back to live performance, but. There are a lot of challenges, and and as was as I think Lynn mentioned, you know, at least stories on stage audiences, we're older, we're an older demographic, so obviously, you know, we're not the people who are running off to Florida beaches. We are the we are the other demographic, and and how does that affect us? Because it's true, our, our consideration of the audience has to be foremost, and it's interesting that to hear Lynn say, you know, talking about the possibility of altering programming. We don't have a stories on stage season yet. I'm already wondering, well, is doing a show about the pandemic too soon? We're, we're going, we're, we are going to do a story contest with our audience to share uh, sheltering it in place stories. And we're going to do those, but that'll be a very 
you know, interactive thing with our audience and a discussion with the audience right now, right in the middle, middle of it. But what does that mean next season? Or, or, or does one want to program unicorns and rainbows and, and it's all happy? But on a related theme, um, I, I was slated this summer, lucky enough to be directing a production of Coriolanus up at the Colorado Shakespeare Festival. And God love them. They, they have such a can-do attitude up there. It's one of the reasons I adore that company. And they were going, yeah, we're going ahead. We're going to start rehearsals in May. And that has shifted uh, as, as reality set in. And I'm really relieved because it would be unsafe and uncertain and, and not a good idea. And then I was overjoyed when Timothy Orr, the artistic director up there, and Wendy France said, you know, we're just going to take our season as it is right now and just airlift it into next year, which is fantastic. I mean, never did I believe the word postponement would be such a beautiful word to me, but it is right now. Yeah. But, but what is so fascinating about this for economic and lots of other good reasons, these shows that are already designed, concepts are done, the designs are in, they're with very little change because we won't be able to afford any change. You know, they, they will, God willing, and the creek don't rise, move into next season as they are, except everything around them will have changed. The world is going to be a different world. We are going to be a different audience watching it. The performers and crew and technicians who are building it and performing it and rehearsing it are going to be different people than we were before this thing happened and what a what a remarkable and fascinating process that's going to be yeah i've i've daydreamed or dreamed dreamed daydreamed about being back on that outdoor space uh and the sensation of sort of presenting a show whether it's the indoor or outdoor uh space and that sort of the joy and celebration of being on that and having the audience witness this thing that's a year delayed uh, hopefully no more than a year delayed. And the joy there, and I, I can't wait to get back on that stage. Okay, I want to ask you all a little more about what's possible on Zoom. I'm in my week five of teaching online via Zoom, and I teach creativity, and I teach my students are producing these creative projects after moving their bodies and speaking and making sounds. Uh, and then I'm teaching actor movement and voice. And uh, what Anthony said about Zoom being a good stopgap, like there's a lot you can do on Zoom and it is a lifesaver, but it is it is fallible. And um, what has frustrated me, and I'm, I'm curious what you all think, uh, is I actually can do a lot with movement. The voice work is what I struggle with more because the sound is, comp- I don't understand what happens through Zoom, but compressed, you know, digitized. I find that I miss human sound and voice more over Zoom than I do bodies because I can see people move and I feel like I can teach and they can learn physically. Um, Vocally, I find myself having to um, rely on them and them taking the responsibility to feel it physically. We had a funny thing the other day. We're doing Animal Farm, if if the crops don't die and the creeks don't rise, um, um, in the spring and um, Jess Robley, lovely actor, um, uh, is directing and adapting it uh, for us. So we did a reading with with a, a group of actors on Zoom. Um, and it's so unsatisfying, you know, to not be able to make eye contact with the person you're in the scene with. And um, choral language, 
was hilarious. There was all kind, you know, they sing beasts of your land, beasts of our land. They have all this sort of choral language in this adaptation she's done. It's <laughs> hilarious because you cannot sync up choral language. No, and it's like you can almost sync, like it's a tiny difference, but it's enough to not. It, oh, it was hilarious. It was very, very funny, but it was better than nothing. And otherwise, um, we would, you know, it was a really, really good first look at some questions she had. She learned a lot from it. We got a lot of feedback from actors. It was, you know, it was certainly not a bad use of our time, but boy, do I miss <laughs> human spit. <laughs> across the table. Yeah. Allison, you were going to say something too. I was just going to say that I think, you know, in classes and especially studio classes and even how it extends obviously to the last beautiful piece of our work, which is the audience is just breathing together. Like all of the, like when someone's muted, just all of the like beautiful non-verbals, like Anthony said earlier is that he's like, oh, I, you know, I should be a mute because I might laugh or respond to, you know, like, all of those things. I actually took a class because I was super curious to be a student. And so I took a class and that was, it was a beautiful experience, but it was really hard. It was an improv class. So there was no, there just was no play and no interplay between the students. And also like what you gain from that peer to peer, just ensemble feeling of coming together. So that, I mean, like, I feel like there are so many things that are um, intangible that are so gold about being in the same space that are very, very hard to replace in a, in a digital platform and a virtual platform. Yeah, I can, um, I can definitely actually pick up on my students' energy level. I can tell when they're enthusiastic and I can tell when they're restless. Um, and I also find myself gesturing in larger <laughs> quantities and just bigger, like, ah, just to kind of, as, I, as Anthony says, you know, make sure I get to the people um, but there's an article going around. I think it's all over Facebook. I think it's the guardian where it's like really fatiguing to be on zoom because w there are just cues that you pick up on, uh, in person that we actually, our eyes are just trying to pick up on. And especially when we're these tiny rectangles, it's hard, it's hard to pick up on it. So it is fatiguing. Um, and of course things are lost. Yeah. I'm really glad to hear what you said though, about zoom being fatiguing because I, I when we do one of these shows, I finish it and I feel like I've just done the baton death march. I mean, it really takes it out of me. And I, I thought it was just me. That's interesting to know. I do think for, I had a really interesting experience where I was a guest in, of a friend of mine who's a Russian. Uh, she lives in Vladivostok, Russia, and she teaches English. Um, and uh, she was she translated a bilingual production I did years ago and became longtime friends. And she had me as a guest in her Zoom. They're all online too, and um, in her Zoom class. And she said that what she noticed is um, that the students interacted with their, they, when she did this live where she had English speakers, native English speakers live in her class, the students were very shy to sound foolish, but that they were much more engaged and um, braver to put together a particular question. And I wonder if that's also true, um, you know, if, you know, that the quieter students maybe have a bit of an advantage in this, um, you know, that they normally don't have where all the extrovert type A people take over a classroom. Maybe it, it, it balances for students that way a little bit, kind of levels the playing field for, for those students a bit. 
Yeah, I love that as an idea. I, I find that Zoom provides this opportunity to do breakout rooms uh, where you can organize people into groups of three or four. And the students who are the self-proclaimed shy people tend to speak up a lot, at least in that. So is there anything more before I maybe ask one final question that any of you wants to say? No, I guess I, I guess it's speaking the obvious, but I mean, my heart is breaking for all the actors out there. I mean, it's obviously it's rough on everyone. Good, good Lord. But you know what? It's an existential dilemma of a major kind. What do you do when you're an actor and you can't act? The financial impact is terrifying as well. That's true for a lot of sectors in the society right now. But, but when you can't even audition, when you can't even, I mean, folks are, folks are so hungry to just do anything, any little zoom, production any and and it's very interesting as as a producer because we don't have a lot of money to throw around right now because nothing is coming in but the question becomes what what is providing a lovely opportunity for an actor who's stuck at home and would like to be doing some acting and what's exploitative um we're hopeful hopefully we're we're on the side of the angels with that but all these questions you never had to ask yourself come up and I I I just uh, the uh you know Denver has the Denver Actors Fund which is this most amazing organization that you all know who in in past times it's been about providing medical support when when actors get sick but they just wrote, raised a huge fund for out of work actors and and that's a that is a miracle and a gift but you know, I keep racking my brain about, you know, what can we all do for each other right now? It's really hard. I've been thinking a lot about, I mentioned it before, and there's a beautiful article that I read about, about grief. Obviously, there's massive grief of people losing family members and families enduring the loss of, you know, maybe two incomes. But then also, the article was just kind of giving permission to all of us to grieve what we need to grieve. And like, I think that especially in the creative space and the creative community of like grieving things that never came to fruition, grieving shows that didn't have their run. I, you know, like I think, as I mentioned before, with the student space of grieving prom and you get to grieve prom and you get to grieve the baseball championship that you didn't get to play and the soccer team that all you want to do is join. Like all of the, I think like they're, the generosity of sort of allowing those spaces to be open within ourselves and like, especially for our families and our friend community of just like letting that live of like, of course, young person, you get to grieve that you might not get to Air Force Academy, that you didn't get to have your family live for your graduation of that incredible accomplishment that you, you know, like there's all these little moments of grief. And I think that just the acknowledgement of that in that article and in that space really helps me because I think, yeah, I just am, heartbroken for, you know, I really recognize as an organization, as somebody who runs, you know, a department of like the impact of every shift that it has on the artistic community of Denver. Like just in terms of, oh, that stagehand, if that happens, they won't have a job or that actor won't have that opportunity or that class won't be available for us to hire an amazing person to teach it. Like those little tiny things. It's it then as up that it is really, really, really big until we can all come back together. And as you said, 
and what incredible joy that will be when we can all come back together in these amazing, beautiful communal spaces, which we know will survive because they've survived for years and years and centuries and centuries. But yeah, it is, it's, it's, it's hard. It's just, you know, to verbalize, it's just hard. It's heartbreaking and hard for sure. I've been thinking a lot about catharsis, which I believe in, (laughs) that the act of being able to perform a character's lived experience can be cathartic for the actor and also for the audience. And I, and I wish for people who, who enjoy doing that actors, audience members, et cetera, to somehow have the opportunity, even when we're home and not interacting with each other so much, the opportunity to, to do that. It's like the Denver Howell at 8 PM who I do that. Sometimes I get on my roof and I howl and it is, it's liberating and it feels good. And I like to be really loud. And I had a call and response with my uh, neighbor three doors down and she's like, well, there you are on the roof. This is crazy. And there was a moment of, of coming together with this woman who I don't usually chat with um, and hearing the dogs and hearing fireworks. And uh, you know, I, I wish that everyone has that opportunity because I think theater and storytelling provides that opportunity to people. I just hope that even though there's much less theater, people can still do that sort of thing collectively. Thank you to the founders of the Denver Howell. I appreciate you. (laughs) My Howell sounds like a very sad dog. Like it doesn't sort of have that like majestic, like it gets off the ground. It just sort of sounds like a dog that's real sad. Just like, all right. (laughs) Great. Oh, well, thank you so much. I'd love to keep talking and talking and talking. There's so many questions and we will have some answers as, as the days progress. Um, Thank you. I am going to theater superpower, right? Is that we are all really great at embracing the questions. Like what are the questions underneath? Like explore the exploration, like let's explore the heck out of it. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) <laughs> That's my new, I mean, I, I, a question I was trying to form in my brain was sort of how do we, if we're not able to collaborate in real space together so much, like how do we still keep this collaborative energy, this collective energy? It's part of the reason I wanted three of you, right, today and not just one. Um, and yeah, and that we, and, and, and my new favorite way of thinking about like given circumstances is you have a bunch of statements that you know are true and then you just ask a ton of questions when you're unpacking a play, because you're like, I don't know that yet. I don't know that yet. I don't know that yet. But by asking the question, we will reach the answer. Yeah. I was um, hanging out. I put that in quotes because it was big social distancing um, with the amazing Sam Gregory last night. And he asked the group of people a great question, which is what is your newfound superpower that you have within this period of time? So, I mean, I think that that's a good, maybe for all of us, like, what is your newfound superpower? You know, so. I love that. Does anyone have an answer? Mine, mine is patience. If, if, if I, I, if I believed in, you know, that in multiple lives that I'm not sure that I do, but I am convinced that the reason I keep being forced to come back is because I cannot learn to be patient. It is my biggest challenge personally, in every way. And I feel like I've gotten quite good at that, that that I can't control it. And I just have to go, you know, it's a river and I'm in it and I'm floating down the river, keeping my feet in front of me. So I don't bash my head against the rocks. Um, And uh, I don't know if it'll last outside of this, but I feel like I've really improved in that area of who I am. 
So thank you, frickin' virus. <laughs> yeah, patience was my first word that came to mind also. Mine too. Wow. Mine too. I mean, I'm still uh, grappling with it, you know, but I love... <laughs> I love, Allison, what you said about grieving, because, you know, with such such disaster all around, you sit there and go, oh, well, first world problem. But first world problems are problems. I mean, they are until the next whatever hits you and then that becomes your problem. But but thank you for that. That's really that's really helpful. Well, I also just think that there's no. like the most beautiful things in the world that there's no, it's not, grief isn't finite and it doesn't have a size. So everybody get like, it's like, it's, it's additive. I even think like having open conversations with people about like, that got me. I feel like also brings people together instead of like, Oh, my superpowers, I'm going to just gird my loins and just be in it to win. Have you um, not to throw another thing, but there's also been your quarantine name, which I really have embraced recently, is your emotion that you're feeling right now and the last thing that you ate out of your kitchen. <laughs> I think that that's another thing that is really helpful. Like uh, my friend Leslie's today was shell-shocked cheese, which I just was like, come on. That's really good. That's really good. Oh, I love that. I'm going to take that to my students. Yes, I think everybody should build. And then what's wonderful is it's unlike your, you know, what your drag queen name or your porn name or whatever it is, it doesn't stay like it constantly changes because, you know, we're just moving through these emotions and also my pantry, the same thing. So it constantly is. (laughs) It's wonderful. Oh, I love that. I think on that note, we should officially stop the recording. Uh, Anyone who wants to stay on and party is welcome to. (laughs) Thank you all. So we want to thank DU for helping to fund our podcast. We want to thank Jonathan Howard, our terrific sound engineer and web designer, Jennifer Forsyth for her administrative prowess, Cami Chaikin for her energy and commitment to increasing our social media presence. Check us out on Facebook and Instagram uh, and Nate Cushing for his awesome editing. Also, we want to thank Gracie Leonard, who helped uh, with tracking down a bunch of research for this particular episode. Thanks, Gracie. And finally, thank you for listening. Thank you so much.